I'm Michael McMullen. And I'm John Mark Yates. Welcome to This Week in Church History. Welcome to This Week in Church History. This is week 11 for March 15 to 21 of 2020. Our author this week is Gregory A. Wills, the research professor of church history and Baptist heritage, the director of the B.H. Carroll Center for Baptist Heritage and Mission at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Wills is the author of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, 1859 to 2009, released by Oxford University Press, as well as Democratic Religion, Freedom, Authority, and Church Discipline in the Baptist South, 1785 to 1900. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Wills. It's great to be here. So this week, as we are looking at individuals and um, movements and uh, people who are influential within the history of the church. John Broadus died uh, this week in 1895 on, on March 16th. There's hardly a person I can think of that impacted really Southern Baptist life more uh, than Broadus. Uh, the second president of Southern Seminary, uh, Spurgeon called him one of the greatest living preachers, um, uh, The one of the uh, people who helped found Southwestern Seminary, uh, Albert Henry Newman had called uh, called him uh, an incredible preacher. Even A.T. Robertson had called him equal to any. Um, why should listeners know about John Albert Broadus? And where would you kind of place your own ranking on his preaching related to other 19th century preachers? Right. You know, Southern Baptists don't have a, and, and Baptists in general, don't have a Martin Luther or a John Calvin or a John Wesley, this this dominating figure, uh, founding a movement and and therefore giving so much shape to the movement. We have a large number of gifted and godly leaders throughout our history who continue to uh, influence us. That gave shape to the movement. And John Broadus is one of those. He was such an extraordinarily gifted man in so many ways. He came on as the founding professor of Southern Seminary, as professor in Greek and New Testament, as well as homiletics, mm-hmm. and he is known for both. He, he's left us a very, very fine commentary on the Gospel of Matthew and a very fine, um, very fine textbook that is still used in some places <laughs> on the preparation and delivery of sermons. Right. <clears throat> Right now, but he had he came from a very humble background. Uh, he was born on January 24, 1827, in Virginia. He was the youngest of four kids, a family that didn't have a lot of financial means. How does somebody go from such humble beginnings to being the president of a seminary? Right, no, no simple answer to that question. A couple of important factors are he was sold out to Christ mm-hmm. when he was converted. Um, he made it his ambition by the mercy of God to serve Christ with all of his being. And so there is a humble dependence upon God's mercy and grace and power. Uh, there is an utter dependence upon God's word and utter another faith in the truth of everything in the word of God. And I think these are fundamental to what he accomplished by God's mercy. And he had a right ambition. He 
he was not content ever. In fact, he told his students one time, um, he said, don't be satisfied with doing well if it is possible to do better. Mm. Have a magnificent discontent. Mm. And he himself had a magnificent discontent. He had ambition to do more, to do better for the sake of the kingdom of God. And so I think that was an important part of what made him into such an influential figure. It's fascinating when you look at even those from the outside who who saw his capabilities, his um, his prowess, not only in oratory, but also uh, in his academic giftings and leanings. Uh, he, he was pursued by uh, University of Chicago, Brown University, Georgetown, Crozier, uh, all making advances to Broadus in an attempt to secure him as a potential president for their schools. Um, but it was even Harvard that gave him an honorary degree, if I remember correctly. And he did give the Yale Beecher Lectures uh, in 1889, shortly after taking the helm at uh, Southern. Uh, what is he doing that is so well regarded by these institutions um, that they're not only pursuing him, his leadership, but seeing that he might be someone that could shape even their institutional histories? Right. They recognize that he is a a scholar who pursues questions and answers with energy and integrity. He knows the, the field. He reads other scholars. He thinks carefully, critically, cogently. And so his, his thoughts are constructed with, with an excellent foundation of truth and information. And, he is able to bring critical abilities to those areas in order to, in such a way that those who hear him recognize wisdom, sound judgment, and insight mm -hmm. into the scriptures, into the nature of the world, and into the nature of the human heart. And so when he spoke, and especially when he preached, it came across to those who heard with remarkable power often with unique power, so that he was so widely regarded as one of the most effective preachers of his day. One wonders what would have become of, say, like a Brown University had uh, brought us chosen to go there instead of remaining at Southern. That would have been uh, very interesting, to say the least. I was going to say, so on the one hand, it would have been of great value to an institution like Brown or as you mentioned earlier, the University of Chicago right. and its founding with uh, being underwritten by John D. Rockefeller, the brainchild of A.H. Strong in, in most respects, and and Strong in particular very much wanted Broadus. Rockefeller knew Broadus, admired Broadus, and wanted him to be the founding president. And the University of Chicago, which became, in fact, the headquarters of Baptist liberalism, I think the headquarters of Protestant liberalism uh, from the 1880s until perhaps 1920 or 1930, if Broadus had been president, it would have been a very different case. Wow. But the reason he didn't go to these schools, the reason he refused those invitations and very attractive invitations to some of the most influential churches and in the Baptist churches in the entire country is because he believed that he had a duty to establish an institution that would train pastors and preachers 
for Baptist churches in the United States to that the churches would be equipped to stand against error and to remain faithful to the scriptures in every respect. And this is some of these offers are coming at a time when his salary is not being paid. Right. When he's having to go go and purchase his groceries and the necessities for his home by asking if he can get it on credit. And this was deeply mortifying to him. And so he's suffering in these various ways. At the same time, he's refusing these very attractive invitations, which would have eliminated all of his um, worldly anxieties. Mm. But he was committed to establishing Southern Baptist Theological Seminary for the sake of the churches. And so he was willing to endure all things in order to be a faithful steward of that call. So that leads, I think, naturally to this question. And, and sometimes as historians, it's we don't like to play what if because there only is what, what was. But what if there had been no broadest? Um, what do you believe the effect would have been on the on Southern Baptists? Wow. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there are a number of, of very direct and consequential ways in which it would have been a, well, from my perspective, a disaster. Hmm. And so he was pastor of the Charlottesville Baptist Church in Charlottesville, Virginia, chaplain at the University of Virginia, taught Greek and classics sometimes there. And he was very active in the revival that swept this nation in 1858 and 59. Yes. Yep. And it is his preaching, his witnessing, his exhortations, his leadership in establishing meetings for those seeking salvation in which Lottie Moon was saved. Right. And Lottie Moon had a tremendous impact on the extension of the gospel to the ends of the earth by the, her example of faithful sacrificial gospel labor in China mm-hmm. and using that influence to, to urge and accomplish the organization of support for missions among Southern Baptist churches. And so the, the strong support of foreign missions that emerged in the late 19th and on into the 20th century among Southern Baptists is in large measure from the, the energy sacrifice example and exhortations of Lottie Moon. Wow. Related to that, in a in a almost an antithetical way, is the the person and influence of Crawford H. Toy. Right. Who also came under Broadus's influence and felt a call to missions. Uh, under Broadus's preaching, even as Lottie Moon, after her conversion, uh, gave her heart and, and resolve to serve as a missionary, if possible, um, through the same preaching of Broadus. But Toy didn't ever serve as a missionary. He went and studied in Germany, came back, became a professor at Southern Seminary, and while a professor there in the 1870s, embraced a liberal view of the Bible, a liberal view of history, and transformed his understanding of Christianity. And Broadus, along with Boyce, required him to resign. And Broadus told him, he warned him, he he said, your views of inspiration, although now they have not had radical impact upon your views of the faith, 
given your incredible intellect and your logical consistency, this is but the beginning of a journey that will lead you to Arminianism and atheism. Wow. And so Broadus warned him and urged him and tried to bring him back. But having failed that, Ian Boyce required his resignation if he had not resigned, if he had not, if, if there had not been that clear recognition by Boyce and Broadus that this was a deeply damaging error. Toy might have stayed on it at Southern Seminary right. and had a powerful place of influence to continue to spread his liberal views. He did considerable damage as it was, even right. resigning. Right. You know, damage would have been much greater otherwise. Oh, and by the way, <laughs> one other aspect of that. That example of Boyce and Broadus holding the line on inspiration served as an inspiration and encouragement to Southern Baptists right down to the present day. I cannot mm-hmm. tell you how many letters I, letters I have read in which Southern Baptist pastors have referenced Boyce and Broadus and their stand against Toy's views. It's so amazing when we kind of consider these types of questions, uh, the amazing influence that a person who is fully committed to Christ who is simply a faithful servant, can have within, within the lives of countless individuals. Uh, unbelievable thinking uh, through that. Now, as we think through Broadus's time, uh, he, he lived during a very tumultuous time uh, in United States history. What was his relationship with uh, to the Civil War? Well, as a... Southern white man, he was a supporter of the war effort once secession was accomplished, once the war began. However, before the war began, before secession was accomplished, he opposed secession. Now, as virtually every white person in the South was, he was pro-slavery, not pro-slavery. You know, there, were, there were different shades of pro-slavery, and uh, he, he wanted emancipation, but it was not – he was not – uh, promoting a racial equality, as he should have, but he was recognizing the terrible evils that slavery uh, that were involved with slavery, and so he wanted to see slavery in. And so he was an emancipationist, but he was not an abolitionist, and he defended the morality of slavery in principle, even though he condemned it in practice. Mm-hmm. And then once secession became an accomplished fact. He believed it was his duty to support um, what what they were calling, of course, their new country, the Confederate States of America. And so he was a supporter of the war effort. However, he saw that his duty was a, as a minister of the gospel, as a pastor, elder, overseer, his duty was to apply the word of God. And so he, he wrote literature extensively to get the gospel to soldiers and to encourage Christians in the army and throughout the South to be faithful in their walk before God. And then in in 1863, he preached for many months among the army of Northern Virginia. And after they were coming back from their um, Pennsylvania campaign after the defeat at Gettysburg, he preached extensively in their many camps, calling sinners to come to Christ and seeking to encourage those who were um, oppressed by, by um, their experience of the war, by those who were wounded. Um, so he, he ministered extensively among the Confederate soldiers in 1863. And God blessed that many, many hundreds, perhaps thousands came to faith 
as a result of his labors in preaching. Following the war as well, um, he sought to be a a little bit more of a unifier uh, to try to bring um, unity amongst people to move past the, uh, the issues that were there. Um, in what ways did he try to do that, especially for Southern Baptists? Right. So, so he went north frequently after the war, and while he he did not he did not, in so many words, apologize for the South's position, but he did speak words of peace and reconciliation, and uh, in, in affirmation, uh, he, he affirmed. The results of the war, he affirmed the the results of the war in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. He, um, he encouraged unity and fellowship among Christians, North and South, especially among Baptists. And every summer, for many years, he preached at the Orange, New Jersey Baptist Church, one of the, the more influential Baptist churches in the North, and and. Preached for them regularly, but preached for many other churches in the mm-hmm. north as well. It's um, his his leadership in that response, trying to bring healing to a country that had been so torn um, by war, uh, and then even working to try to bring um, not just political healing but spiritual healing in the churches was what made some of his his sermons during that time. When you go back and read them, very powerful. Uh, as he tries to, to to bring scripture to bear on that, tell us a little bit about your book on Southern Seminary uh, as a whole, where you you did spend a time uh, talking about Broadus because uh, the second president and, and and did a lot to really establish Southern in a helpful way. Why did you write this history of Southern Seminary? I it, the the. Last time a history had been written was in 1959, and so with the 150th coming up, it was a, a natural suggestion. But but the reason I did it was because I was convinced of just how important its history was. Southern Seminary was uh, central to most of the important events, trends, controversies um, of of Southern Baptist history, and so it became a a window into Baptist history, in some measure into evangelical history, but but Baptist history in particular. So just telling the history of that seminary enabled me also to tell the story of Southern Baptists. And it was an intensely interesting history in its own right as well. Mm. Broadus's role was so significant. I mean, I've already mentioned a couple things. But the, the seminary had a very difficult time getting established because, in large measure, it was established just before the disruptions, the economic difficulties that resulted from the Civil War and the new economic realities of the postbellum period. Right. After, after the war, Boyce wanted to restart the, the seminary immediately. Manley and Williams, the two of the other faculty members, there were four faculty members, Manley and Williams said, there's no way we can start it. It will be an utter failure, and if it fails now, it'll never restart again. And so we need to wait until we can get enough money and support and then restart it. Boyce said, if we wait to restart it, it will never restart. Mm. 
And so Boyce said, we have got it. We've got no money. We'll have no students. We'll have no way to pay for anything, but we have got to start the seminary again. And so they argued about this for several months in, in 1865, and they met together in Greenville to talk and pray about it, and Broadus finally summed up their commitment to, to Christ and to his church in this way. He said, suppose we quietly agree that the seminary may die, but that we will die first. Mm. And it captured their heart to serve Christ in building up his church to the training of ministers. And so they agreed that they would restart the seminary, although there was no earthly prospect of success. Wow. Wow. That, that is some commitment right there. Uh, and I cannot imagine the, um, the fortitude that they had to have both personally and uh, their families involved within that as well. That this was a high risk venture, uh, for more than just the men involved, but also their families and, and possibly even their churches as you write. Right. So they suffered financially for, for, uh, almost 15 years right. after the end of the war, trying to get the seminary on a sound basis. It's unreal. What story of Broadus uh, didn't make the book that you, you know, if you could go back through and, and um, work it out, that you, that you add back in a story of, of Broadus into that volume, what might that, that, what, what might that story that you had to leave out be? Oh, boy. So I think, I think more than an individual story, it would be a series of anecdotes, uh, a, a series of, of expressions from those who heard him or knew him of of what of how he how he came across to them how he impacted and influenced mm. them but also some of the incredibly witty sayings um for example he once said the talking to preachers he said the moment you think you can preach well enough quit <laughs> <laughs> that's great <laughs> which is also an encouragement to preachers because um just about every Sunday uh, after the sermon, the preacher thinks, man, what in the world? I, I wish I could have given a good sermon. So, <laughs> that's, right? that's completely true. But, but in, he, he, was, uh, he preached in Texas when the Southern Baptist Commission met in Texas, and I, I can't remember. It was in the 1880s. I can't remember the exact year it was. Uh, it may have been the 1870s, actually. And B.H. Carroll was at that meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention. And Carroll had become disenamored of the preaching that he heard at the convention. He'd heard a lot of it over the years, and uh, it, it fell into a certain pattern, and he was not impressed with it. And when Broadus preached, it had a profound impact on him. And later in life, he said there were three sermons that changed his life. And hearing Broadus's convention sermon that year at the SBC, he said, changed his life. It changed how he preached in particular, how he conceived preaching. Indeed, he said when Broadus just read the scriptures, he said he'd never heard anyone read the scriptures that way. And he said to himself, that is the way the scriptures should be read. Wow. That is amazing. So if we think, if we think through this and, you know, here at Midwestern, we're always doing things uh, in, in our, our tagline here for the church. So we're always trying to think and conceptualize uh, how what we're talking about relates back to the local church. What should pastors or church leaders understand uh, about Broadus? Uh, there's plenty of nuggets that we've already talked about, but 
if you were to leave pastors or church leaders with with one thing about Broadus, what what would that be? I I, I suppose I, I want I'm, I'm gonna gonna say two things. One, as I mentioned before, his utter trust in the truth and power of the Word of God, mm. and then perhaps principally as a result of that, his humble love of Christ's church and of the brothers and sisters. And they, care, they, they formed in him a character that was winsome. And as much as he was gifted, as, as powerful as, as his preaching and writing was, that, that love, that holy character that he had, we must say is just as important as the content and, and form of those sermons and writings. Mm. So good. Well, Dr. Wells, thank you so much for spending a few moments with us today. Uh, thank you for, for joining uh, our podcast. For listeners, as always, you can look into the show notes and find links to some of the references we cited here during the podcast. For many of the books we talked about by Dr. Wills, you can find them at the Sword and Trial Bookstore here on the beautiful campus of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary or in our online shop at mbts.edu forward slash store. Thanks for joining us this week, and we will see you next week. 